Chapter 19 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in January 2021. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 19 Solar Eclipses Spectroscopy. It is perhaps more usual to postpone the consideration of spectroscopy until after that of the increase of knowledge obtained from solar eclipses. It is so difficult to study the two separately, however, that perhaps the order is not very material. In Chapter 13, we glanced at some eclipse phenomena noted up to the time of the eclipse of 1842. A few years later, the first daguerreotypes of the sun were taken, one at the eclipse of 1851, but solar photography with collodion plates practically began with the work of Warren de la Rue, whose observatory at Cranford was built for the purpose of celestial photography in 1857, only six years after the invention of the collodion plate and in 1858 Q Observatory commenced a long series of solar photographs. At the Spanish eclipse of 1860, De La Rue and Father Secchi at different stations succeeded in obtaining photographs, showing beyond doubt what had been only regarded as a probability, that the rosy prominences belonged to the sun and not the moon, inasmuch as the motion of the latter was shown across the background of prominence light, and also showing the reality and comparative permanency of those flames, the eclipse taking place seven minutes later at one station than at the other, and yet showing recognizable identities. A still greater advance was directly due to the eclipse of 1868 in India and the Malay Peninsula, for which the spectroscope was added to the equipment of the eclipse expeditions. The bright lines known to indicate incandescent vapor were seen by several observers, and though not all at once identified, the presence of hydrogen was clear, and also a bright line noted in the orange, which was at first assumed to be the D-line of sodium, already known to be double, D1 and D2. Janssen, moreover, who was one of the successful observers, was so struck with the brightness of the lines he saw that he at once announced that he would see them after the eclipse was over. This prediction he fulfilled next day, carrying out the idea suggested to his fertile brain during the eclipse. This idea sounds very simple, like the egg feet of Columbus, when somebody else has pointed it out. It is not actually the brightness of the sun's disk that ordinarily prevents the prominences on the limb from being seen, but it is the brightness of the rest of the field, that is to say, the diffused sunlight in the sky. It follows then that when this is withdrawn by the interposition of the moon, we can see the prominences easily, but it also follows that if we can diminish the relative brightness of the sky, we should get a modified form of the same effect. The use of a spectroscope, while diminishing the diffused light by spreading a given quantity over a large space, only refracts the prominence bright lines, so that in comparison with the background they become brighter with increased dispersion. 
this notable discovery had however been anticipated lockyer had for two years been awaiting the completion of an instrument ordered for the express purpose of viewing under high dispersion the bright line spectrum he expected the prominences to furnish and receiving it after news of the eclipse had shown what lines should be there he very speedily found them a delay of a month by janssen before sending news of his discovery to the paris academy of science allowed lockyer's to be received a few minutes earlier the independence of the two identical discoveries was at once admitted and both names were equally honoured and the academy's gold medal for the year awarded jointly failing these two scientists yet a third was on the track earlier still and there is little doubt that in time sir william huggins would have been able to announce that he had discovered what he had sought some months before lockyer obtained his instrument or janssen viewed his eclipse and that it had been known beforehand what bright lines would be found he would certainly have obtained priority but as we have seen it was not until after the eclipse had come and gone that any one knew exactly where to look it was no longer necessary to study prominences in the few precious moments of an eclipse so more time could henceforth be spared on such occasions for the corona whose spectrum was hardly seen in eighteen sixty eight though it was inferred from its appearing polarized in planes through the sun's centre that its light was in part reflected sunshine in the following year at the north american eclipse a continuous spectrum was seen with a single green ray at first identified with an iron line fourteen seventy four in kirchhoff's map but since eighteen ninety eight recognized as a distinct ray due to a substance unknown on earth but called coronium and considered in virtue of its persistence at three hundred thousand miles from the sun's surface to be much lighter than any known terrestrial substance the next eclipse of december eighteen seventy is memorable in many ways janssen left paris in a balloon in order to escape the besieging prussians but from his stations in algiers was entirely prevented by cloud from seeing anything of the eclipse lockyer was shipwrecked on the way out to sicily and only saw the eclipsed sun for a second and a half but professor young one of those who had measured the green ray in the previous year was more successful at the instant of totality the spectrum which had been fading gradually away as the light diminished was suddenly reversed every dark fraunhofer line being replaced by a bright one this discovery of the reversing layer was due to the employment of a slit in a direction tangential to the disappearing limb of the sun its appearance was theoretically expected as it was assumed that some layer cooler than the actual sun was responsible for the absorption of those same lines and would if the sun's light were withdrawn give those very lines bright the spectrum of the flash has been often seen since the layer is so thin that three seconds is apparently an outside limit to its visibility a snapshot of it however and without some such permanent record its character could hardly be considered absolutely proved 
was one of the fruits of the unfortunate eclipse of 1896, though the success then achieved at Novaya Zemlya by Shackleton has been often repeated since. In 1871 December, an eclipse, visible in India and Australia, gave Janssen another opportunity, of which he, in the pure atmosphere of a hill station in southern India, made such good use that he detected dark Fraunhofer lines, including the D-line of sodium, in the spectrum of the corona, using an instrument of short focus and large aperture, in order to give a very bright image. The next advance was an instrumental one, already attempted in 1871, by the substitution of a prism outside the object glass for a slit at the focus of the spectroscope. The outcome of this was what is now known as the prismatic camera, employed first in 1875, and at nearly every observed eclipse since that time. There is an underlying truth in the myth of Hercules and the Hydra, as symbolical of the struggles of scientific investigation towards the elucidation of problems. Each advance in the power of the scientific weapon discloses new fields of inquiry at least as fast as it reaps harvests from the older ones. The detailed analysis of the chromosphere and corona at once suggested the general question as to variability or permanence in the solar envelopes. The obvious test was a comparison of the features of an eclipse at times of greatest and least solar energy as evidenced by spot activity. The general form of the corona near a maximum sunspot epoch had been noted in several eclipses, the extension of the corona being then relatively great in the spot zones, making the external boundary a rough square, or rather oblong, since the mean latitude of spot zones is far below 45 degrees. In 1878, at a minimum sunspot epoch, the appearance was quite different, and extensions were seen in the direction of the ecliptic. These were variously assumed to be swarms of meteors, or else the zodiacal light, if indeed these are really different explanations, while another typical feature of the corona was a brush-like structure at each pole of a distinctly magnetic appearance, inasmuch as in each case it seemed to radiate from the pole and not from the sun's centre. This eclipse was viewed under exceptional conditions from Pike's Peak, Langley, even occupying the summit more than two and a half miles above sea level, so that the purity of the atmosphere was far greater than had usually been the case at eclipse stations. The general type of corona agreed with what had been recorded on at least one previous occasion of minimum activity. The spectrum also differed from that of the maximum corona. The green coronium ray was far less conspicuous, and the polarization diminished outwards from the limit instead of first increasing to a maximum. This eclipse is notable for the alleged discovery of intramercurial planets by Swift and Watson. In 1882, a year of great sunspot activity, came another opportunity of contrasting a maximum corona with the minimum features of 1878. In the pure air of Upper Egypt, the brushes and long streamers were not seen, 
but the structure once more resembled the corona of 1871. The polarization at the limb was less, indicating a smaller proportion of reflected light. This eclipse is unique in that a photograph of the corona shows a comet close to the sun, which is supposed never to have been visible before or since, but there is no certainty on the subject. The H and K lines of calcium appeared so strong in the coronal spectrum of 1882 that Huggins hoped by cutting off the rest of the light to photograph the corona without an eclipse. By using silver chloride plates which did not react to the bright part of the spectrum, he obtained promising results, until the great eruption in the Straits of Sunda in 1883 filled the upper atmosphere with dust, causing magnificent sunsets, but sadly interfering with the transparency of the air on which delicate solar observations so largely depend. From time to time, various devices have been tried since 1883. For instance, at Pikes Peak in 1893 by Professor Hale, and on Mount Etna in the following year by Professor Rico. But the verdict was failure, and it is only quite recently that a confident claim of success has been made by A. Hansky on Mont Blanc. Much has been written to prove that the outer corona at any rate is not real, but is a diffraction effect due to the Earth's atmosphere and the rifts in the moon's limb. Lockyer, for instance, many years ago, argued from spectroscopic evidence as to the extreme tenuity of the gases in the atmosphere that there can be no pressure there sufficient to support an extended corona. But since the corona, as viewed from a mountain top, shows far more extension than when viewed from a lower station, it is evident that atmospheric glare is not the cause of the phenomenon. The New Zealand eclipse of 1885 was signalized by the observation of two white prominences. It is only the rosy prominences, or it may be only the rosy interior portions, that can be seen without an eclipse and Tacchini in the following year emphasized this still more strongly. The corona that year was of an intermediate or transition type, and in the following year the little success granted by the weather, which was bad over most of the eclipse track, showed a still further transition towards the minimum type, which was reproduced in both eclipses of 1889 the main difference between them being an apparent east-to-west reversal of the widest extension. The later one cost the life of one indefatigable solar observer, Father Perry of the Jesuit College at Stonyhurst, who died of malaria contracted in the damp heat of the Salute Islands of French Guiana. The Royal Astronomical Society, who sent him out, also sent to the west coast of Africa, it being considered of great importance not only to increase the chances of success by occupying more stations, but by choosing those differing much in longitude, to test what changes, if any, could be detected during the interval of two and a half hours between the occurrence of the phenomenon at the two stations. Father Perry's death greatly diminished the value of his photographs, as he was unable to develop them at once, and they did not keep well in that moist climate. 
Taylor, at the other side of the Atlantic, saw nothing of the eclipse owing to cloud. A similar opportunity occurring in 1893 was favored with fine weather from the Andes to the African coast. Chebele of the Lick Observatory obtained a comet medal on this occasion for a curious paraboloidal form mixed up with many coronal streamers on one of his photographs, but many doubt whether the appearance was not simply a solar appendage. Fowler at Fundium on the African coast made good use of the prismatic camera, finding not only the known green ray, but seven others, none of them identified, possibly all belonging to the substance which has been named coronium, but of lines belonging to a spectrum like that of the chromosphere or prominence layer he found none, suggesting that no terrestrial element such as hydrogen or calcium occurs in gaseous form in the corona. The rotation of the corona was sought in vain by de Londres, since the violet rays he wished to employ for this purpose from opposite sides of the sun were absent. We have already referred to the unfortunate eclipse of 1896, when most of the observers in Norway and Japan were entirely disappointed. But by the generous offer of Sir George Baden-Powell, an English expedition was enabled to meet with success at Novaya Zemlya, an island also occupied by a Russian party, including Hansky, who drew the inference from his observations that in every case an eruption in the chromosphere by its expelling force was responsible for each streamer from the corona. The Indian eclipse of 1898 was favored with very fine weather and good photographic conditions, evidenced by Mrs. Maunder's success in showing on a plate, taken with an aperture of only one and a half inches, the greatest length of streamer ever photographed extending to three degrees from the limb. Totality was short, only 100 seconds, and no results of definite scientific importance emerged, except in the promise of future success in two different directions. Professor Turner's suggestion of the advantage of using a Kulostat, a plane reflector driven by clockwork so adjusted as to provide an image of the sun in a constant horizontal direction, while the telescope tube remained fixed in shelter, was largely adopted at this eclipse and found to work admirably. By the use of the Kulostat, a telescope of large aperture can be taken to a distant station without the necessity for also providing its heavy mounting, that required for the Kulostat being much less cumbersome. Moreover, in this way, an objective can be used without its heavy tube, a temporary wooden framework to exclude light being all that is necessary to connect the lens with the camera, which can be in a dark room. The other direction in which promise was shown was the attempt made by Professor Turner himself to photograph the corona in polarized light. In the eclipse of 1901, stations in Mauritius and Sumatra gave additional evidence as to changes in the corona in a short time, and rendered it fairly certain that the polarization effect belongs only to the outer corona, while the inner corona is self-luminous. The eclipse of 1905, August 30, whose track crossed Labrador and Egypt, 
promised another excellent opportunity for detecting changes in a few hours by comparison of results at the two ends of the long arc but though the conditions in egypt were excellent nothing was seen by any official party in labrador valuable results were obtained at those of the spanish and african stations which were favored with good weather conditions while others were little more fortunate than labrador for instance at guelma in algeria newell was exceptionally favored and exceptionally successful having for the eclipse the only fine day in the week but even there the attempt to determine rotation of the corona by comparing the green ray at east and west limbs failed by reason of the faintness of the ray which did not show on the photographs elsewhere it was noted that the polariscope showed a maximum effect at about five or six minutes from the limb confirming previous observations near a sunspot maximum from the eclipse of january nineteen o seven not much was hoped though the track from north of the caspian nearly to the gulf of okhotsk was uninterrupted by oceans it passed at the most unfavorable time of year over the roof of the world hardly any part of its length being in a promising region as it was however the only eclipse for some years to come of any promise whatever russian french and german expeditions were sent only to meet with disappointment the eclipse was seen but through falling snow which effectually prevented any delicate scientific observation we have little space for solar spectroscopy from the more strictly chemical point of view it has long been known that the d-line discovered at the eighteen sixty eight eclipse is not the double line of sodium but slightly more refrangible under the name of d3 it has been attributed to a substance to which lockyer gave the name of helium footnote to mark it as a solar substance not known on the earth End footnote. but in eighteen ninety five it was found by professor ramsey in a terrestrial mineral cleavite it has twice the atomic weight of hydrogen the lightest known element other hitherto unknown lines in the spectrum of the chromosphere were soon recognized as belonging to helium many metallic elements are occasionally identified in the spectrum of the sun's upper atmosphere in addition to the always present hydrogen helium and calcium and it is thought that this indicates a simple density stratification frequently disturbed by solar activity which temporarily upsets the equilibrium and permits the lower strata to be for a time unmasked one of the modern developments in eclipse work is the greatly increased scientific interest shown by amateur societies such as the british astronomical association which has been represented at nearly every practicable eclipse since its first definite expedition to norway in eighteen ninety six which was as we have seen so unfortunate it has been said with some truth and perhaps some bitterness that the more care is taken to select a station where the average weather conditions are best the greater the probability of total failure certainly the only members of the norway party in eighteen ninety six who saw anything of the eclipse were a few who did not trouble to go to the selected spot 
but stayed at the first point reached by the expedition from which the eclipse could by any possibility be seen there are so many possible lines of investigation for which elaborate apparatus is not required that the assistance of a large number of comparatively untrained observers is exceedingly welcome relieving the better equipped scientific expeditions of many details that would take valuable time which they can ill spare out of a period that in the most favorable case could not possibly reach eight minutes and is rarely half so long it has become customary for sir norman lockyer when in charge of a british government eclipse expedition to have the assistance of most of the officers and crew of a war vessel and their keenness of vision their trained intelligence and habits of discipline render them peculiarly efficient for the purpose of the accompanying phenomena of a solar eclipse for instance the apparent darkness measured either by a photometer by noting the faintest stars that become visible or by some empirical method such as ability to read small print the behavior of plants and animals the appearance and velocity of the shadow bands and many other matters provide a program of great interest and necessitate for completeness a fairly large eclipse party in addition to the spectroscopists and other photographers the physicists who measure the effect of the interposed moon on radiation or terrestrial magnetism and the meteorologists who note the variation of temperature and humidity longer and longer grows the program practically nothing can be cut out as no longer worthy of notice though shadow bands for instance are generally regarded as a phenomenon of physical optics and it is hinted that they as well as the celebrated green flash can be produced under other conditions than in the one case a total eclipse and in the other the setting or rising sun End of chapter 19